Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about the Georgia runoffs and the urgency of winning those races, both seats, to give the Biden-Harris administration a Senate majority, uh, which ought to happen no matter what, because Mitch McConnell just, we can't keep doing this. Um, in the meantime, though, what if that does not work out the way we expected to or wanted to? Now, I'm claiming that it's going to happen. We've got good signs that it's going to happen. But is there something or are there some things that the Biden and Harris administration can do? whether they have the Senate or not. And let's face it, 50-50 on different issues, that could go either way. So what's the strategy? What can a White House do with or without a a Senate majority? Now, there's a new group that's been formed called New Consensus. My good friend uh, Corbin Trent reached out to me about it. He's the former chief of staff of AOC. And so, you know, there's some AOC folk and AOC adjacent folk and progressive folk involved in this who sent a memo to Kamala and Joe. We want to hear all about it and hear about this new group, New Consensus. And my guest today representing New Consensus is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Finance at 
Cornell University and former counsel at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the International Monetary Fund. He's a fellow of this new group, New Consensus, and a frequent consultant on matters of public finance and financial reform for federal, state, and municipal legislators, most recently on Building Back Better and on the Green New Deal. Professor Robert Hockett joins Make It Plain today. Professor, how are you, man? Doing fine, Reverend. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, a great honor, uh, and I'm doing kind of indecently well in the sense that I've been pretty fortunate uh, in not being uh, sort of personally hit by the pandemic. But I think all of us, of course, are at the very least indirectly hit by it because all of us know uh, and love people who are being afflicted. So I guess I'd say I'm directly doing okay, but I'm indirectly, which is almost <laughs> at least as important, I suppose, um, you know, troubled like all the rest of us are about what's going on right now. In, indeed, indeed. And as a matter of fact, now uh, we were just talking, you, you and me being in New York, we are pretty fortunate to even be able to talk this way. Yeah. So that's a good thing. But you and Corbyn are trying to get me in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> you're not supposed to be talking. Nancy Pelosi and them said, we're not supposed to be talking like this. Robert, <laughs> about Green New Deal. Are y'all trying to? I'm surviving COVID. I may not survive congressional Democrats. What are y'all trying to do to me, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we're definitely getting you in trouble in this way, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but this is a good thing. Tell us uh, how new consensus has come together. Yeah, sure. So it grows out of a couple of previous uh, groups that were really all about looking for uh, possible candidates for office back starting in 2017, 2018. Uh, who might kind of fall between the cracks of the usual sort of, you know, kind of cookie cutter categories that we use uh, in uh, classifying or categorizing uh, political figures, right? So the thought was, you know, you can be really uh, in favor of an active federal government and uh, an active an active state government and municipal governments without thereby being somehow anti-industry or anti-private sector. One way of thinking of new consensus's view of things is basically let's recognize something that we all were told in our youths, but we seem to have forgotten about more lately, which is that ours is a mixed economy, meaning that the public sector has to play a very important role in kind of setting the stage and kind of conducting the orchestra, so to speak, or coordinating actions to make an environment that is facilitative of private enterprise. Uh, and then if the public sector is doing that correctly, then private enterprise will indeed flourish and it will flourish in ways that are consistent with basic justice uh, and with planetary uh, sustainability. So now this, some of the things that you all are recommending can happen in the White House itself. But but let's walk through some of that. You all have sort of a list of things and you sent this memo. First of all, have you gotten anything, any response to the memo yet? Yes, uh, quite a few responses, in fact. Um, from, the, from the administration? From the, from, yeah, from the team uh, or from members of the transition team uh, on the one hand, and then, of course, quite a bit of press as well on the other hand. Okay. And and so has the administration response been, been positive? It's been positive in the sense that they appeared to be um, willing to and ready to chat 
uh, further about it. So we've got some conversations actually on, on deck for next week uh, with some of the transition team members. So, you know, so far, um, you know, in, in the sort of email responses uh, to our having sent the memos, um, we're hearing this looks really interesting. This looks really, you know, potentially quite great. Uh, let's talk further. And I, I think that's about as positive as one can expect at this particular stage, right? Because it's really about, you know, kind of opening the door to some conversation to sort of elaborate further. As you probably noticed, the seven page memo is fairly, you know, it's meant to be kind of efficient. And so it's, it's very sort of basic, you know, sort of step by step. Um, and filling in the details uh, requires a somewhat longer conversation. And that's what appears to be on deck now. So um, I want people to get a, a sense of this. Um, industry, infrastructure, and investment. Yeah. Um, so now, uh, Professor, um, take us through class a little bit, and let's assume that there are a lot of people like me um, who weren't that good in economics at Georgetown University. So... <laughs> well, that would be a good sign, rather. <laughs> I would say... <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as you know, and as you'll remember from your student days, um, there's been a, an economic orthodoxy that's been sort of hegemonic uh, in most of the academy for about 30 to 40 years now. That hegemony is beginning to kind of give way uh, to new thinking. And sort of ironically or paradoxically, a lot of the new thinking is really simply a recovery of old thinking. So um, the fact that you didn't do so well uh, in economics uh, at Georgetown or at any other great university uh, in, if, it, if it was in, within the last 40 years is probably a, a kind of good sign, frankly, from, from my point of view. But in any event, the old wisdom that seems to be being sort of rediscovered now by um, even by orthodox economists is precisely a couple of things. First of all, again, that the public sector has to play a role in providing the background environment against which private industry can actually prosper, right? Can actually function well. And moreover, um, if we if we draw a very simple distinction between sort of short-term profiting by speculating on the one hand and longer-term profiting by investing in actual production, productive industries on the other hand, then we can say, all right, well, look, uh, it really does take public sector action to provide a background against which you can prosper in the long run through productive investment. And if we don't provide that background, it actually becomes individually rational for private sector actors and investors simply to try to profit in the short term by speculating. By speculating, I mean basically placing bets on where, right, security of financial asset prices are going to go, right, on the secondary markets and the derivative markets. So in effect, I'll, I'll try to make this, I'll put this in terms that, um, Anybody, even people who have no economics background at all can understand. So I hope that I hope you'll forgive me for that, because, of course, with an economics background like you have, this will be kind of old hat to you. But maybe just for some of our listeners, the overwhelmingly greater part of financial activity right now on Wall Street and in other financial markets basically is this kind of betting behavior. So you look at some price level, the price of petroleum, the price of housing, the price of this, that or the other thing. And then you can actually place bets with other people on where those prices are likely to go. Now, that's what we call speculating, right? You're basically just, it's, it's essentially a, a glorified casino sort of situation where you're basically doing a Las Vegas thing, but instead of betting on what the slot machine is going to do, you're betting on where various prices are going to go. Now, that's not productive investment. And indeed, if lots of people sort of jump into placing bets 
on a particular financial asset. They can even drive up the price of that asset artificially. That's what we call a bubble. That's, of course, what happened in the lead up to 08. Right. Now, what you'll, you'll remember that in the, in, the, in the sort of immediate aftermath of the 08 crash, there was a lot of talk about, you know, how people are evil on Wall Street, the financial markets are full of evil people, and that they're all irrational and so forth. Um, that was sort of only half true in the sense that, yeah, there were certainly, you know, there was criminal activity, a lot of exploitative activity. But it was only half true <clears throat> because that's the case all the time, right? That's the financial markets are full of that kind of thing. What was different about 08 is that even perfectly reasonable and perfectly innocent people got in on the act. And the reason for that was because, again, that was the most that was the easiest way to make money. Right. The second, right, things were simply set up in such a way that you could make a lot more money basically placing those bets on those price movements than you could in actually investing in productive activity. And that's what the public sector has to do. The public sector has to provide the background against which or the sort of the, the terrain upon which productive investment is as profitable or more profitable than speculative investment. And that's what we think orthodoxy had kind of forgotten for 40 years. And right. so that's what we at New Consensus are sort of trying to rediscover and then act upon. The um, And that, I like, I'm glad you used the term casino. <laughs> Someone of your academic stature um, using that term validates somebody, a layperson like me using it. And some, mm -hmm. oh, that's too harsh, Mark. But that's really what it is. It's like Vegas on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand. Are you? Are we saying that that really has not subsided much since 2008? Is that the fact? It is the fact. It is the fact, Reverend. Unfortunately, I mean, the, the real tragedy, I think, of 09 and after is that we really did have the opportunity at that time to respond in the right way. Right. But one way of looking at the crash of 08 was as a, a gigantic symptom, right? It was sort of, it was a problem in its own right, but it was even more significant in what it revealed about deeper underlying, more enduring problems. And so we had the chance in 09, both in terms of sort of political will or political capital, and in terms, I think, of sort of widespread public recognition of the fact that there was an underlying flaw to change that underlying flaw, right? To sort of cure the disease rather than just the symptom. But what we did instead was simply to basically go after the symptom. It was a bit like, let's say you have like a deep infection somewhere in your body. So you're, you've got this terrible disease um, and it causes inflammation. And so you're kind of, you got an elevated temperature, you got a headache, you're, and somebody gives you an aspirin or a Tylenol uh, to sort of bring down the inflammation. Well, in one sense, I mean, that's good. It's certainly better than nothing because the inflammation can become a problem in its own right, right? You can become your body can become so hot that you end up, you know, systems begin shutting down and you can be killed. So addressing the symptom is helpful in that you're kind of rescuing the body as well, but it's not addressing the underlying problem that generated the inflammation in the first place. And that's what we didn't do. And that's one reason why we've seen over the last 10 years, the stock market recover and more, right? We've had record high stock uh, Dow Jones averages uh, until COVID, of course, and yet the underlying economy in terms of real wage rates, uh, workforce participation rates, uh, racial wealth gaps and racial income right. gaps, completely, you know, nothing, nothing solved, nothing changed at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you folks talk about the new consensus memo, and we invite you uh, to read it for yourselves at newconsensus.com. Um, and you talk about infrastructure investment. Yeah. So if I ran for president, professor and you and my running mate we would 
run on rebuilding transportation infrastructure, high speed rail, like every other civilized country and not quite civilized country. As, I mean, that's movement, that's economy, all the different things that go with building rail stations across the country. That's real infrastructure investment, is it not? It really is. Yeah. And the thing is, infrastructure includes all of that and more, which people tend to kind of overlook. Furthermore, I think people tend to overlook the kind of symbiotic relation, if I can put it that way, a kind of chicken and egg relation between infrastructure on the one hand and industry on the other hand. Uh, we tend to think of infrastructure as publicly provided, and then we tend to think of industry as privately done. And that's by and large correct, which is great. But it, you know, if we think about the implications of that, it means that if we don't, if the public is not doing its job, namely to provide the right infrastructures, then the private sector, which handles the industry, isn't going to be able to do its job either, because the industries need that infrastructure in order to function optimally. I can give you a really simple, concrete example that might kind of help make this intuitively understandable immediately to all of the listeners. Um, so imagine um, somebody invents an electric car that works really, really well. And somebody invents, you know, basically battery technology that stores energy really, really well. So a kind of, you know, a firm like Tesla becomes possible. Well, you know, Tesla, of course, does some pretty great work. And that leads some people to say, well, why can't Tesla just handle all of it then? Well, there are two things that are left out. <clears throat> One is that people sort of forget how important the public role was in making Tesla itself possible in the first place by taking on the risks, the investment risks with respect to a lot of the new technologies that Tesla uses that Tesla itself would not have been able to take on. We can get into more detail on that momentarily because that's all about finance. But another piece of the story, which is a little bit more immediately appreciable, I think, by listeners, is that if you think about what makes it rational for Tesla to go ahead and produce these cars, well, it has to think, first of all, well, is there going to be a market for them? Are people going to buy them? And think about one of the determinants of whether there would be a market like that. We would need an infrastructure pursuant to which people who drive electric cars can recharge them, even when they're out and about, errandying or driving. So imagine, for example, you had a charging station at every parking meter in a city so that when people park their electric cars, they can also have them recharging, right? Well, that's that's bound to make electric cars much more popular and much more widely accepted. And in that sense, it could be thought of as a sort of prerequisite to electric cars becoming a big market. But Tesla has no power to do that. Tesla does not have the authority to put charging stations at parking meters in every city of America. The cities themselves have to do that. Furthermore, they themselves require financing to be able to do that. And most cities, as you know, don't have that kind of money. So a, a really important thing that the public sector could do here would be for the federal government to provide funding for cities to put charging stations at every parking meter and at various other places so that then it makes sense for the private sector to drive more of these cars and hence to produce more of these cars. And again, that's just one example. But the, the idea I'm trying to get across is this kind of, again, this sort of synergy or this harmony, this chicken and egg relation between the public sector role and the private sector role in making a new industry possible. And we tend to forget that there is you need both. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's important. There are also and, and folks, those are just some of the tasks or the task um, under those three eyes, uh, industries, infrastructures and investments. Um, but then there's the instrumentation. Yeah. And that would come, Robert, 
or the instrumentalities would come in the form of a National Development Council um, and a National Development Bank to begin. Talk to us about about those, if you would. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we sort of think of what we've proposed here as a kind of a three-legged stool with sort of three principal legs. And uh, the first leg is this National Development Council that you mentioned first. So here's the basic idea. Um, as you know, um, the presidential administration has or the pres- any president has a cabinet. And the cabinet is basically the head of all the executive agencies that are our principal federal instrumentalities. These agencies, for their part, all have jurisdiction over particular industries and particular infrastructures across the entirety of our continent-spanning republic. So the Department of Energy has jurisdiction over all components of our energy systems, right? The Department of um, the, the Federal Communications Commission has jurisdiction over our many communications media and the various networks and in, you know, infrastructures like, you know, sort of cables and GPS and so forth, satellite uh, uh, hookups that are required in order for communication in the private sector to be possible. And as the you know, Department of um, Education, same with the schools and so on and so forth. You, you get the, the picture here. So here's the thing. Um, if we want to have a kind of a truly integrated national development strategy, which we haven't had in many decades, but all of our peer jurisdictions out there in the rest of the world have, we have to be able to kind of develop a coordinated view where we're all on the same page, when we're looking at the economy as a whole, to sort of spot where some things are necessary, where other things are necessary, and also to kind of have a view of the economy as a whole so that we know that if we take action in this particular realm, like let's say energy, that it's not somehow messing up what we're trying to do in another realm, like communications, for example, or transportation, right? So in other words, what the depart we need are transportation infrastructures and industries right. to be able to act harmoniously with our energy uh, industries and so forth. But we have all these distinct and siloed federal instrumentalities that deal with each of these realms separately. So the idea of a National Development Council is for the president and the vice president to bring together into one council all of the heads of these agencies, plus the Federal Reserve Chair and the Treasury Secretary, to develop a unified, internally coherent, and comprehensive national development strategy so that we're kind of planning ahead. And that doesn't mean blueprinting. It just means getting a broad overview of what is generally necessary in what parts of the country. And all of our peer jurisdictions do this, and we ourselves used to do it, but we don't do it now. I think it's partly owing to another intellectual blunder that the economics profession made starting 40, 50 years ago that I think is beginning to be rectified. And that's the mistake of thinking that development or national development is like a one-off achievement, right? You start off as an underdeveloped country, and then you do a couple of things, and presto change, and now you're developed, and now you can just coast. That's just not true. Development is constant, right? You, you, you know the old line from the old Bob Dylan song. I think it's, it's all right, Ma. Um, there's this wonderful line where Bob Dylan, Mr. Dylan in the early sixties sings, he not busy being born is busy dying. So I call this the Bob Dylan theory of development. In effect, a country not being busy being, I'm sorry, a country not busy being born is busy dying. And our country has been busy dying for decades in this particular sense. So that's the idea behind the uh, National Development Council. So I'll pause for a second. Uh, I can talk about the other two things too, but I, I, I don't want to talk too much. No, no, that's that's fine. We're we're all learning here, and I appreciate your approach, and I, and I like the the analogy to Dylan. But again, let me put my layperson hat on, folks. Robert's talking about coordination. What what 
Have we ever heard of that before? When's the last time we saw coordination in the White House? <laughs> exactly. okay, that might be a little over people's system. Yeah, I forgot that people do actually in civilized situations coordinate between agencies. It's not that's not complicated. Yeah. And as he talks about stagnation when it comes to development, he's talking about innovation. Who sent out the memo that said, okay, that's it. We're not doing nothing else. Again, <laughs> folks, when we travel, I mean, we're not traveling as much during COVID. We go other places. Wait a minute. We're supposed to be the greatest, biggest country thing in the world. And folks got stuff over here that we, is just incomprehensible, not even a conversation. So I just want to be clear about that. What Robert is talking about is really not controversial and it's necessary. It's like all the members of your household, everybody just doing their own thing and there's no coordination and there's no improvement going on. We just stuck and the house isn't improved upon. We've been living there 50 years. So yeah, that's that, that, that did I? That's perfectly put, perfectly put, Rev. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of my, one of my closest friends, uh, uh, my sort of fellow ringleader of a little homeless kibbutz that we started back in the 90s when I was still a student named Chaka. And Chaka used to have this great expression. He'd say, stuck on stupid. <laughs> He's like, we stuck yeah. on stupid, Bob. We yeah. stuck on stupid. And in a sense, the nation has been sort of stuck on stupid. And the reason for that, I think, is that in a way, the most insidious mistakes that we make are the mistakes that we haven't articulated so that we we don't examine them. It's the stuff that we subconsciously take for granted. So I don't think anybody ever made a deliberate decision, okay, we don't develop anymore. What happened instead is in a very subtle way, we got into this habit of thinking of development as a light switch, that first it's off and then it's on. And as soon as somebody points to it and says, hey, that can't be the way development works. It can't be that there's a light switch that's off and then you just flip it on. It has to be more like a, a continuous process of growth and, you know, kind of gradual improvement. Um, and as soon as somebody points it out, then it looks obvious because, of course, it is obvious. It's just that we weren't thinking about it before. So I think we were stuck on stupid because we just sort of hadn't noticed that we were making that assumption. And all it takes is it's just like the emperor's new clothes story. A naive little boy sort of notes, hey, the emperor seems to be wearing nothing. Um, and it's, all it takes is a moment of naivety to say, wait a minute, why do we assume that development is a one-off achievement like a light switch? And as soon as somebody asks that question, I think it, you know, hopefully it leads everybody to think, oh, yeah, that's kind of stupid. That's kind of crazy. We should think of development as being forever, as being perpetual. Well, so, I think like RFK uh, um, phrase, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And say why others, we say why not? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. So, so where is that? I mean, to me, you're not, that's not, a, a, if we want to promote American exceptionalism, what's exceptional about just sitting still and being stagnant and we're not doing anything? Okay. Um, so, new consensus also has another concept spread <clears throat> the Fed. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, the spread the Fed idea is, is, is basically as follows. Um, so a lot of people are confused about the nature of the Federal Reserve System, right? You'll hear people refer to something they'll call the Federal Reserve Bank. That's not a thing. There's nothing, there's no such thing as the Federal Reserve Bank. What we have instead is the Federal Reserve System that we put in place 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago. And the system involves the following two sort of levels, you might say. At the oversight level is the Federal Reserve Board. And that's just another one of these instrumentalities that we were talking about. It's a federal agency that oversees the Federal Reserve System. But then the tier below that, level two, 
is a, a network of so-called Federal Reserve Banks in the plural, all of which are regional feds, right? So there's a Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where I used to work, as you noted, at the, at the top of our, of our conversation. There's a Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, of Chicago, of Minneapolis, of Richmond, Atlanta, Dallas, and so on. There are 12 of them in total. And the whole idea of this system, when it was first conceived a bit over 100 years ago, was that these regional Federal Reserve Banks would be development finance assistance agencies across the whole country. Because back in 1913, as you know, there was really the, the economies that were west of uh, the Mississippi, and especially those west of the Rocky Mountains, were all very, very underdeveloped, right? They were very sort of backward. We had, we had barely even begun to fill in those parts of the country with a full national population. And um, so, you know, they required a great deal of development assistance. The economies on the sort of eastern part of the country were a little further along, of course, but they needed ongoing sort of assistance as well. So each Federal Reserve Bank had its own territory, right, each regional Fed, and each of those was designed to sort of facilitate startup companies, new industries, new firms, small family farms, even worker-owned cooperatives and the like to kind of get going, to get started. And the way they would do that would be they would, what we, we, they would do something we call monetizing short-term debt that would be issued by these firms. So if you and I, Rev, were to start a small company and it looked like we had a promising idea, but we were having trouble getting financing maybe because, you know, basically the big Wall Street financiers don't know us from Adam or Eve. Uh, they think, oh, you guys are out in the sticks out west or whatever. They're not going to provide any funding. But the regional Federal Reserve Bank might say, OK, here's what we'll do. You can issue debt instruments and we will buy them from you, thereby monetizing them, basically trading debt instruments for dollars. And then that would enable you and I, Rev, to make investments, to buy the equipment that we need, to rent the facility that we need, to sort of find uh, additional people to work with us on this new enterprise we wanted to start. So you can think of that as sort of startup development. And that's what those local or federal, I'm sorry, those regional Federal Reserve Banks were meant to do. And then what the Federal Reserve Board at the top of the system did was to coordinate, to use that word again, to make sure that what's going on in Cleveland's, in the Cleveland Fed's territory is not in some way operating at cross purposes with what's going on in the Chicago Fed's territory or the Minneapolis Fed's territory or so forth. So the idea was to have a kind of a, a coherent national monetary system while at the same time allowing for regional variation. Because as you know, it's a very diverse country, both along ethnic lines and along geographical lines and even along industrial lines because different industries flourish in different parts of the country. So this is a way of having it both ways, of being a kind of a localized central bank on the one hand, while still being a central bank in the sense of having centralized coordination of the whole system on the other. Now, what we're arguing at New Consensus is that we have to get back to that original vision for the Fed. That's the way the Fed functioned at the beginning. But we got off of that after the Second World War. And what's happened since the Second World War is that the Fed has become exactly what its founders were terrified might happen and were trying to prevent from happening. And that is that the Fed becomes a central bank that's fully central in the sense that it's centralized only in D.C. or New York or both. And it basically just gives free money to or very low cost loans to giant mega banks located on Wall Street. They were paranoid about that. They were terrified. Right? The principal founders of the Federal Reserve System in 1913 were Carter Glass, uh, a senator better known for the Glass-Steagall Act. People sort of forget that he was also a founder of the Fed. And then a, um, a financier named Paul Warburg, uh, who had come, he was an immigrant from Germany, 
who was a great admirer of the German banking system, which is still better than ours to this very day, because it focused on localized production all over all over Germany in all of the different what they call Landa, which are kind of equivalent to our states. So Warburg thought we should have a central bank that's a bit like the German system. And Carter Glass thought we should have a central bank that was very, again, spread, spread out. Those two visions were entirely in sync. And so they gave us the Fed that we that we were supposed to have. But it's become more centralized in, in, in the last 50, 60, 70 years. And so it doesn't really do anything for productive industries all over the country. It's basically focused on Wall Street, which is a very bad idea. So what we're arguing at New Consensus is let's get back to that original vision. And we kind of we've in a certain sense already begun to do that. Because as you know, Rev, there are two very innovative new programs that the Fed began in April to deal with the COVID pandemic, one of which is very significantly called the Main Street Lending Program, and the other which is called the Municipal Liquidity Facility, which is basically a way of helping cities and states out. The problem with the, I mean, the vision here is great, but here's the problem. The entirety of the Main Street Lending Program is run out of Boston, all right, the Boston Fed, with a shoestring staff of like 10, 15 people. Now, what do they know about the needs of Tanya's tractor repair in South Dakota, right? Or, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Nancy's nails uh, out in Watts or whatever. They don't know anything about that. And it's, it's unfair to expect them to do that. Similarly, the entirety of the MLF is run out of the New York Fed. I love everybody there. Most of my former colleagues are still there. They're amazingly uh, serious public servants, amazingly brilliant, thoughtful people. But if you only have 15 or 20 of them, they can't figure out what Billings, Montana needs uh, as quickly as somebody out west would. Uh, and they can't figure out what Oahu needs as quickly as somebody out west would. Right. So what we're arguing is that the administration of these programs should be spread to the regional feds. Right. So let the Dallas Fed handle both MLF and Main Street lending for the southwest. Let the San Francisco Fed handle both Main Street lending and municipal lending for the Northwest. Let the Cleveland Fed handle it around Cleveland, thereabouts. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So things spread the Fed. And ironically, if we spread the Fed in this way, we're really restoring the Fed to what it originally was and was always meant to be. That's your mentality I want to get to, though. Digital taxpayer wallets. Yeah. How does that work? So this is totally, we're really excited about this. So here's the way to look at this. I'm going to put it in sort of accounting terms. But I'm going to keep it simple, stupid, which was another thing that Chaka used to say. He'd say, kids, keep it simple, stupid. So I'm going to guess here. If the Fed is doing this kind of lending that, that we're talking, that we just were talking about, what that means is the Fed takes, it adds assets to its asset portfolio. Right? In other words, if I make a loan to you, Reverend, or if you make a loan to me, I'm going to give you a promissory note. You're going to give me money in return for the promissory note. You're now going to hold my promissory note. And that is an asset for you, right? It's basically you, I owe you something. And insofar as you have the proof that I owe you that, you have an asset called a promissory note. Well, the same pick, the same story is, under, is, is in effect, if the Fed is making loans, right? It's going to be holding a bunch of promissory notes in effect, right? Now, what any accountant will tell you is that corresponding to any asset, there has to be a liability, right? There have to be liabilities on the other side of the balance sheet. Currently, the liabilities that the Fed has are called reserve accounts that private sector banks have with the Fed. So the Fed basically gives money to a private sector bank by crediting a bank account that that private sector bank has with the Fed. It's like bank to the banks. What we're arguing at New Consensus is that that system on the liability side of the Fed balance sheet should be replaced. Instead of just having 
bank accounts for private sector banks that enables the Fed basically to lend them really cheap money. Every citizen and every small business and every legal resident of the country should have a digital wallet, which functions as a kind of bank account. And when the Fed makes a payment to you, if the Fed is lending money to you, for example, let's say you're a small business, a startup out in the West, like we were talking about before. And let's say you're approved for a loan by the Main Street Lending Program that the Fed operates out West. Well, what that means is the Fed is going to give money to you to, to, to spend to sort of get your business going, right? Well, the best way to do this, we're arguing, is if everybody, including every small business, has a digital wallet that's on their smart device or smartphone, the Fed gives you that money by crediting your wallet, and then you can spend out of that wallet, right? Mm-hmm. So that would make the operations of Fed lending much more efficient and more direct. You cut out the middleman, basically. So there's that. But then once you have that infrastructure in place, there are a whole bunch of side benefits that come with it. For example, if the Fed wanted to make stimulus payments to people like we did back in April, you know, under the CARES Act, those $1,200 checks, Remember how difficult it was to get those out to people because we had to figure out where they lived. We had to get addresses. Mr. Trump insisted on signing the checks so he could take credit for it, all that. What if instead of that, the Fed simply says, oh, so there's a stimulus we've decided on where everybody gets 1200 bucks? Okay, we'll just instantly credit everybody's digital wallet with $1,200. Basically, it happens in literally in seconds. And now everybody can start spending that money immediately, right? So that kind of uh, that that infrastructure that would then be in place for what we call helicopter drops in monetary policy land, or, or what we could also just call stimulus checks, would be in place too. Note one further point: going, you know, looking further ahead, if the Fed offered interest on those wallets in the same way that it gives interest on bank reserve accounts now. If you had a, a in the future, if inflationary pressure were to, were to come into being, where there's a sort of an overheating economy and we wanted to sort of slow down spending activity instead of speeding it up like we want to do now, you could simply raise the interest payments on those wallets because now you and I, Rev, would have an incentive to spend less out of our wallets and save more because we're earning interest on our savings. So you could really do monetary policy, both the stimulative kind and the sort of suppressive kind, really quickly and easily in real time with this digital wallets infrastructure. And the final point I'll make here, which really, really totally cool, is we already have that infrastructure in place. We're just not using it. There's a system called Treasury Direct. In fact, um, your listeners might want to Google this uh, at some point soon if they have access to a laptop or just any any web browser on their phones. If you just Google or just do a web search on Treasury Direct, you'll find that you can open up an account with the U.S. Treasury right now. You or I can do this right now, Reverend, if we want to. It would take five minutes, and we could then buy Treasury securities from the Treasury on those accounts, or we could sell them back. Well, what we could do is we could instantly convert those Treasury direct accounts into these digital wallets that have a kind of peer-to-peer connectivity. I've talked to U.S. Digital Service, which is another agency within the executive branch. They say that they could convert Treasury direct accounts into these digital wallets within a matter of weeks. So we could actually have this up and running if we wanted to by December. But of course, nothing's going to happen under the current administration. So maybe when Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris take office at the end of January, we could have something like this up and running as soon as February. It would require no new legislation. We would just instruct Treasury to basically add that functionality to the already existing infrastructure of Treasury direct accounts. So uh, rebuilding and restructuring in the infrastructure 
and investments mm-hmm. using, as you all have outlined in the memo, establishing a new National Development Council, a National Development Bank, um, spreading the Fed back to its original purpose, which a lot of people didn't realize what the original purpose of the Fed was. We You taught us a lot today, Robert. And with digital taxpayer wallets, this administration could do all of that for the benefit of, of, of improving the employment situation, innovation, small business, green tech, debt and deficit reduction, export growth, um, and wealth and income inequality. The Biden-Harris administration could accomplish all of this without legislation and without the Senate. That's the case you're making. How's that? That's the key. Yeah. So the, the thing is, we would prefer, uh, we, we hope that we're going to get that Senate majority. And we actually believe that we will. We're all very confident about Georgia. But it's crucial, we think, for the, for the incoming administration not to assume that's going to happen. Because just in case it doesn't, we need a plan B, so to speak. But the cool thing is <clears throat> that the memo lays out in those seven pages is that we actually do have that plan B. So for example, starting with the National Development Council, you don't need any new legislation to do this. You've got all of these cabinet officials already, and you've got all these departments already. All that Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris have to do is say, let's meet guys monthly, uh, and let's carve out, let's sort of work out or, or sort of develop this national development strategy and see where we most need to be directing public money to give a leg up or to give a boost, to give a kind of booster shot to industries that are really promising for the future, but need some startup capital to get started, right? So you could do this, you could do that right now. In theory, Mr. Trump could do this, but of course he won't. Um, <clears throat> as far as the National uh, Development Bank is concerned, we have an instrumentality already within Treasury that, again, nobody seems to know anything about any more than they know about Treasury direct accounts. It's called the Federal Financing Bank, or FFB, and it's basically a central financial administrator that basically administers or coordinates, let's use that word again, coordinates the Treasury Department's various expenditures. Because anytime we're spending federal money that's been appropriated by Congress, it's spent by the Treasury, right? And the Treasury needs a way to do that in a kind of coherent, centralized way. So it kind of knows what checks are being cut. You know, it all has to be sort of available in one place. And that's what the Federal Financing Bank is for. So we could use the FFB as the financial coordinator that corresponds to the planning coordinator that the National Development Council would be. It's already there. There's absolutely, you don't need new legislation to have it doing this kind of thing. That's what it does already. And then finally, thirdly, the spreading the Fed idea requires no new legislation because that legislation's been on the books since 1913. It's just called the Federal Reserve Act, right? There's nothing that prevents the Fed from doing what it was originally meant to do. All of the sort of weird mission creep and changes in the mission of the Fed have been, well, I don't want to overstate it, there's been some legislation that's, that's caused some of that change. But the overwhelmingly greater part of the Fed's falling away from its original vision is essentially just stuff that the Fed has done on its own. It's just morphed into on its own, on the basis of its existing authority, this 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 much more Wall Street focused central bank. But it can morph back under the same authority, because, again, all of this is within the discretionary authority of the Fed under the Federal Reserve Act. So what we're arguing is all three of these things could be done with or without new legislation, it would be great to have new legislation because then there'll be an extra bit of oomph to it. It kind of has a more sort of, it sort of signals that, hey, we're all on board with this, you know, Congress and the president. But our point is that if we don't get that, 
we can do it anyway because it's all within the existing statutory authority uh, and the constitutional authority, of course, of the president uh, and the president's cabinet and the Fed. Yeah, no, that that's important. Uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, um, if I could put you on the spot. Sure. Um, I would ask you all to consider in terms of the, the wealth uh, and income inequality issue. Um, we, some of us have been working on peace legislation for years and we're close to a markup, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even before the end of the year. Uh, and that's for H.R. 40. And that would be the commission to um, that would study what forms, not whether there should be rep- reparations, but what mm-hmm. reparations might take. And that would be inclusive, frankly, of of some of the things that you're talking about, but specifically for wealth and income inequality, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. not ruling out individual payments, but some mm-hmm. of us, I mean, you give all of, of you give every African-American a couple thousand dollars in this economy, Robert, in a pandemic, that's gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Anything else, there's no stimulus. So, I mean, that's just, you're basically just, just financing a temporary stimulus until McConnell stops the next situation. But instead, the type of investment that you're talking about, because African-Americans were not included yeah. um, early on in the Homestead Act and the GI Bill and those types of things that established the middle class that is now under siege. Yeah. Um, I would just ask you guys to consider also supporting that because here's where we are. Um, no Senate. The Biden Harris administration could still appoint that commission. Yeah. You know, they don't need a bill. Now, mm-hmm. we have 200 co-sponsors in the House, but we don't have the Senate yet. You know, we've got maybe about 20 co-sponsors in the Senate. But the Biden Harris administration can do so. We're going to set up a national development bank in, or in total, but we're also going to look at how do we deal with systemic racism vis-a-vis reparations, vis-a-vis economic investment in mm-hmm. the African-American community that has been historically mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. Economics professor, is that making any sense to you? Oh, it makes total sense. Um, we're all on board with that, Reverend. Uh, um, we're probably all on board with it in our own particular ways. Uh, my own way might be on the more sort of radical end, um, but maybe it's not. I'll, I'll just tell you what it is, and you can you can tell me how it strikes you. Um, so you know, we owe an enormous debt to the descendants of slaves, and also people who are in effect treated as if they too were the descendants of slaves. Right? You don't really have to have been an actual literal descendant if you live in a community that is systematically deprived because it is primarily a community that was developed by. Um, uh, the descendants of slaves. So if you think about the, the the human capital that was simply extracted out of human beings up until the late 1860s as uh, legally, you know, like as part of the law, and then illegally, but still really, uh, even after then, right, that's what Jim Crow and systematic discrimination in the workplace and in job hiring and in capital availability to start up new businesses has been, if you sort of look at all of that, you recognize that we have this sort of enormous debt, obviously. And furthermore, that the kinds of compensation that we've paid out thus far are much more in the nature that you sort of opened with the idea of just making some payments to folk so that they can go out and buy stuff. There hasn't, there doesn't seem to have been a systematic attempt 
to basically place African-American Americans and actually all non-white Americans on the same level when it comes to the opportunity to, to establish, start up new businesses, uh, to develop human potential through higher education of various kinds, um, when it comes to sort of access to public sector financing for startups and the like. We've done nothing along those lines, or almost, you know, next to nothing, right? And here's, here's the other thing that's kind of interesting, it seems to me, is that this is one of those interesting cases where doing what justice requires also happens to be the most stimulative thing that you could do for economic growth, meaning that even people who are not people of color would benefit enormously by doing this, and they would benefit more by doing this than by doing anything else that we could imagine doing. And what I mean by that is that, you know, any economist will tell you, you probably remember this from your uh, economic student days as well, that basically you always get a lot more stimulus bang for the buck if you're directing money toward the bottom of the income ladder or the wealth ladder, or at least not toward the top of the ladder. Because people, it, it, and it's a very common sense uh, thing if you think about it, the reason behind this, the reason that that's true is that, you know, let's put it this way. If you already have 10 yachts, let's say you're at the top of the ladder and you own 10 yachts, right. uh, somebody gives you a ton more money. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy an 11th yacht or are you just going to basically use that on the casino, basically put it in Wall Street? You're probably going to do the latter. And that's just to say that your marginal propensity to consume, to use J.M. Keynes's term, is very low compared to your marginal propensity to quote-unquote invest or let's just say speculate or gamble. If, on the other hand, you're toward the bottom of the ladder, if you've got more money coming your way, you're actually going to spend that into the real economy, right? And that's going to generate growth and employment. And then you get a kind of virtuous circle or virtuous uh, cycle. And so, in a sense, if what we're, if we do the reparations thing as sort of part of the bigger thing, um, we're really going to make the bigger thing much more effective as a growth generating thing. Uh, than it would otherwise be. So this is one of the, it's often, as you know, you, you and I have probably both t t torn our hair out over this. How often have we heard people say, well, there's a kind of growth versus equity trade-off or a justice efficiency trade-off. It's just not true. In nine out of 10 cases, at least, probably more like 99 out of 100 uh, public policy choice situations, the just thing to do is also the more efficient and growth stimulating thing to do. So we get a massive twofer out of this. You can have your cake and eat it too, as they say, because you could be a more just society and precisely because you're a more just society, be a much more efficient and fast growing and wealthy and prosperous society. Our Scandinavian friends, the Scandinavian economies are a great uh, set of economies to look at in this connection. They've made a real point of being egalitarian. And what's sort of interesting is that they have consistent, steady growth in prosperity and standards of living. And so even though we tend to have these stereotypes, oh, that, oh, that's isn't Scandinavia where those Bergman films ca come out of? Doesn't that mean everybody's dour and dark and sort of pessimistic and blah, blah, blah? But, you know, when we do these like happiness studies across the world where people report on their personal well-being and how content they are with their lives, mm -hmm. ironically, the Danes, you know, Denmark, uh, always is at the top of the list and Sweden and Norway are sort of near the top. And it's basically because they've made a real point of being egalitarian in their economic arrangements, which then makes everybody much more prosperous and it makes growth more reliable. It, we could really take a page out of that playbook, it seems to me, uh, and we would be much better off if we were to do that. And if we do it, it means we really start with those who are not at the top already. And that means starting, first of all, with those that we basically stole human capital from for hundreds of years. 
maybe one last observation worth making in this connection is, you know, we're a very present minded culture. So we don't tend to think in terms of the right. distant past. But, you know, for it, it's still for less, far less than half of our presence here on this continent that African-Americans have been, quote unquote, free. Um, in other words, African-Americans were enslaved for much longer than they've been free, even as a legal matter, even as a de jure matter. And then if you uh, focus instead of legal uh, uh, sort of freedom on practical or actual or real freedom, well, we're still not even there. We've never got there. So we, we've got about 500 years, uh, to sort of, you know, close to 500 years to sort of reverse and, and undo, in effect, at least as far as systematic or systemic racism is concerned and systemic or systematic disadvantaging of certain ethnic groups or people who are not basically from, you know, descended from Western Europeans uh, is concerned. So there's so much we can do still. Um, and we're all, I think all of us at New Consensus are really excited about that. Yeah, well, and, and we are too. And, and we'll, we'll continue that conversation offline. But mm -hmm. what you were saying about the, see, so you just, even in that, you dispel, and people don't say it as much, but Republicans always talk about the job creators. Yeah. And you, as you, you all heard Dr. Hawkins say to us, folks, there's the marginal propensity to consume and the marginal propensity to invest. So when you start giving all these rich folks at the top all these money and these tax breaks and the Republicans will argue, oh, these are job creators. That's not what they're doing. They are putting that money back in their pocket because they've already got the 10 yachts. Yeah. There's no incentive um, um, to to really uh, invest in that way. The other thing, um, and this is the first time we talk, whenever I have uh, economics guests, I always like to bring up, um, and I like to remind my audience, I think one of the most important speeches Dr. King gave was on the steps of Montgomery State Capitol. And he talked about economics extensively yeah. and how black and white were pitted against each other so they would not unify as they were beginning to do right after the Civil War around economic and working class issues. So poor whites were fed the psychological bird of Jim Crow to deal with their hunger. I'm broken hungry, but at least I'm better off than the next black man. And what do we see today? That's what we're seeing. What you've enlightened us to today, what New Consensus um, is putting on the table, are conversations that heretofore have been overshadowed by the culture war, raised by the right wing and Donald Trump and whatnot. We just want judges. Yeah. We want yeah. unqualified judges, but it does nothing. And the people who are angry and people who look like me is misplaced. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. Mm -hmm. They're angry too about the economy, mm -hmm. but there's no focus on how this would actually help them that the, the, the person in charge has a marginal propensity to even spread that wealth. He's going to say, well, you know, I've got y'all in a little trick bag. I got you all feeling racist and wanted, and it distracts you from the fact that I'm not going to do a damn thing. Yeah. To even improve your condition. Robert yeah. and Mark are, but you're not going to listen to them because of what they look like. So, you know, that's, that's really to me is, is the shame of it all. And everybody I've exposed that speech to, they, they come away differently. So wait a minute, we've been kind of, tricked all along and it's a game that's continuing to be played mm -hmm. professor I, I appreciate you this has been a great conversation folks we want you to go to newconsensus.com and read the memo um and again this is important long term in terms of 
what we're going to do to improve our economy and improve our position because working class has become working poor. Dr. Barber is leading the poor people's campaign because there's so many more poor people than we realize this would change that in the long term and in the short term uh, prevent us from being paralyzed whether we get the legislature or the Senate to cooperate um, or not. And Dr. Hockett, we did this today without once mentioning socialism yeah. or defund. So we should be in trouble. But just in case, I'm going to tell Nancy Chuck and say, yo, I've talked to Robert. If you're still if you're still mad, Robert and Corbin put me up to it. Uh, <laughs> it's like my idea. <laughs> you still think this is too controversial? But no, I, I think this is where we have to go. And frankly, I would think that uh, even in the political landscape, those you know scary moderate Democrats would say, "Well, okay, if the administration can do this, then that takes some heat off of us too." So yeah. you know, and that's the way politics works. Yeah. So, so, so this is great. Folks, go to newconsensus.com. Robert, this has been fascinating. And I promise this is not the last time we'll have you on Make It Plain, my friend. Oh, I, I sure hope that's right, Reverend. I just, this has been absolutely, just utterly stimulating and utterly uh, inspiring and happy to join you anytime. And thank you so much, by the way, just in general for all of the great work you do. I'm a massive fan. Uh, and it's, I mean, I don't know where we would be. <laughs> If we didn't have you, Reverend Barber, a few others that are really kind of getting the message out always. And so I'm always, I'll always be delighted and honored to be joining you to talk about any of these things. Thank you so thank, much. Thank you so much. Robert Hockett, folks, don't forget newconsensus.com. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been May Play. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.